Father, again, we thank you just for the fact that in Christ, he is all that we need. Lord, we thank you that your word is so very, very clear that in the Lord Jesus Christ dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily and that we are complete. We are completely secure in him. Father, again, we thank you that in your plan you brought us to yourself and that you, by your spirit, quickened us so that we might believe, that we might repent, that we might turn from our sin and turn to Christ. And that we are now, as believers, part of his body, that he is our head, that he is over all principalities and powers, that it is his kingdom that we live for, and it is his power that works through us, and we're living for his glory. And, and yet, Lord, we know that as we have the sin principle within us, we struggle with that. We get so easily enamored by the trinkets of this world. And we ask that as we study Ecclesiastes today, that you would turn our heart towards home, towards eternity, towards heaven, towards you. That though we live in this world, we would not be enamored by it. That we would set our affections on things above that we'd be seeking those things which please you, that our hearts and our minds and our motivation and our values would be in heaven. So we just ask that you'd give us wisdom and the insight and the power to be able to do that so that we might be pleasing to you and that also so that we might be totally satisfied in you. Again, we need your strength and we need your insight by your spirit. And we thank you that your spirit's in us and is going to do that for us. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. If you'd like to turn your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Dave Kane asked me, do you need any water? And I said, no, I've got my water. <laughs> I might have to put gum in my mouth only if my throat gets sore. But. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, and we're in our second study today. A little story from the 4th century about a guy named Eutropius. Eutropius had fallen into disgrace as the highest ranking official in the Byzantine Empire. That's 4th century. He served as the closest advisor to the Emperor Arcadius, then ruling Constantinople. But Eutropius, Eutropius abused his imperial power and and aroused the anger of the empress who orchestrated a campaign against him that resulted in, his, in a sentence of death. Desperate to save his life, Eutropius slipped away from the palace and ran to the church and clung to its altar and claimed sanctuary. I guess that was the first sanctuary city, sanctuary church. 
Soon an angry mob of soldiers surrounded the great church, denouncing Eutropius and demanding his, uh, his execution. Eventually the crowds dispersed, but the next day was Sunday, so they returned the following morning to see whether the pastor would give in to their demands. The preacher was John Chrysostom. Christosum. I have a hard one with that. Very famous guy. Anyways, the famous orator who served as the Bishop of Constantinople. As he stepped into his pulpit, the pastor could see a church thronged with worshipers and thrill-seekers. They, in turn, could see Eutropius groveling at the altar. The great man had become a pitiable spectacle with his teeth chattering and abject terror in his eyes. The dramatic sermon the pastor gave that day may have been the finest he ever preached, for his text was taken out of Ecclesiastes, verses 1 and 2. In fact, let's just read this. He says, The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. All is vanity, and for his primary illustration, he used the decline and fall of Eutropius. Here was a man, the pastor said, who had lost everything, position, wealth, freedom, safety. Only days before, he had been the second most powerful man in the world. But it was all vanity, as events had proven, for now Eutropius had become Quote, more wretched than a chained convict, more pitiable than a menial slave, more indigent than a beggar, wasting away with hunger. Though I should try my very best, the pastor said, I could never convey to you in words the agony he must be suffering from hour to hour, expecting to be butchered. He He went on and said, his purpose was not to condemn Eutropius, but to save him, and also to give his listeners the Gospels. To that end, he challenged his listeners to recognize the vanity of their own existence. Whether rich or poor, one day they would all have to leave their possessions behind. They too would have to face a day of judgment, the judgment of a holy God. Their only hope then would be the hope that they should that they should offer to Eutropius now mercy at the table of Christ. End quote. I mean, can you imagine the guy who's waiting to be completely hacked up? And yet the pastor comes and said, but we all need mercy. Again, the, the sermon must have hit the mark because they did show mercy to the man and he didn't die. He was spared. And I guess the pastor continued on with Ecclesiastes. But what did we learn from that? What was he saying? He was saying, listen, our hope is not in this world. Our hope is in God. And there is a day of judgment coming for those who are not believers in Jesus Christ. Actually, there's a day of judgment for those who are in Christ. That's called the Bema. But there's a day of judgment, but thankfully for the Christian, it's not a day of condemnation. But we can find mercy and grace in Christ. And that's, and, and that's really the, the, the message of the uh, Ecclesiastes, the, the book of the Old Testament. Now again, we, he doesn't mention Christ. But what he's, what he's, what he's doing is this. He's drawing... The preacher is drawing our attention and saying, listen, our only hope, our only satisfaction, our only contentment is in 
is in God, is in Christ. And we know in the New Testament that Christ came, died for our sins. We can have a relationship with Christ, in Christ. In other words, meaning, meaninglessness, meaninglessness is found outside of God. Meaninglessness is found outside of God. And, and so we are studying this to find where meaning is. I, I remember, an, uh, I think it was C.S. Lewis, he said this. He says, we are too easily satisfied. We are too easily satisfied. What he's saying is this. We get too enamored by the world, the trinkets. The best illustration I can think of is you go to an all-you-can-eat expensive, all-you-can-eat bar. And what do you have there? You have crab legs. And you have roast beef that's been, you know, you know cooked, you know, all night long, and you have the gravy, and you see where I'm going, and all these shrimp, you know, and you had to pay 25, 30 bucks for the, for the all you can eat, but it was worth it, because you have all the, oh man, I was looking up um, king crab this last week, unbelievable how much meat you get out of one of those legs, soak it in butter, you know, you get the picture. All this food, table after table after table. And then you have some seven-year-old that says, Mommy, all I want to have is macaroni and cheese and a piece of pizza. (laughs) Too easily satisfied. Right? Leave the kid home. (laughs) But I'll tell you what. I think we're like that in this world. We are so enamored and we get so t- all the trinkets and we are not, we are not focused in and what, what, what the Bible says that we should do. And as believers in Jesus Christ, like if you see just Colossians, and I'm going to refer to that. In fact, one day I'd like to preach one last sermon on Colossians 3. It says this, If you've been raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. In other words, get your mind in a heavenly mindset. Set your mind on things above, not on the things of the earth. Don't be, you know, all these trinkets. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you appear with him in, him in glory. See, don't be satisfied with the trinkets. Oh, I just want to have macaroni and cheese and pizza. No, no, no. Take the good stuff. And when it comes to the Christian life and spiritual, meditate on the things that are yours in heaven. Right? Where Christ is. Poor Eutropius. Well, he, he found grace. He found mercy. We can too. Well, let's, let's get caught up to the passage so we can get... We're going to be in verses 1 to 11 today. Now, we've established a couple things. First of all, the preacher is Solomon. Verse 1, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem... Well, some people say, is it really Solomon? Or maybe, maybe son of David, could it be someone else? But look at verse 12. King over Israel. That actually, to me, settles it. Because remember Rehoboam, when he took over, divided kingdom. He wasn't over all of Israel. Just part of it. Okay? So, I believe this is Solomon speaking. Now, this is Solomon speaking in his later years. Okay? After he's lived life, he had the wealth... He had the time, he had the resources to basically investigate where, do you, where can you get satisfaction on this earth. And one of the key, word, uh, one of the key phrases is in, in verse uh, 3, 
under the sun. Okay, now you've got to really underline that if you have in verse 3, under the sun. Because what, what Solomon is doing is saying, listen, without a God perspective, I'm going to investigate all the possibilities of this earth. Where can I find satisfaction under the sun without God's perspective? Can a person without God's perspective find satisfaction in this earth, on this earth? And the answer is going to be no. You may be enamored by the trinkets, but you can't find true satisfaction without God. Okay? So it's Solomon again. But these are the very words of God because chapter 12, verse 11 says, given by one shepherd. So really, this is not only written by Solomon, but inspired by the Holy Spirit. Okay? The Spirit of God is the true author of this book. Number two, the message of the book. We go from the preacher to the message. This is the theme or the model. Again, vanity of vanity, says the preacher. Vanity of vanity, all is vanity. Now this is a hard word. Many people look at vanity and they just immediately say, oh, this is emptiness, futility, fleeting. You know, this is just a negative term. He's just a negative preacher. He's just speaking a negative message. And, if I, and I would say it this way, if that's really true, don't even read the book. It will depress you. But what he's going to do is he's going to show you how to find true joy and happiness under the sun, no, excuse me, above the sun with God's perspective. So again, it's not a negative term. It's a hard term. It's a multi-purpose metaphor, as one person said. But the idea really is this. It just means vapor. That word vanity just means vapor. It's short. It's, it's short-lived. Okay? It's... And life is like that. It's elusive. It's uh, mysterious. It's unknowable. This word, vanity, comes to express the absurdity and futility of life in a fallen world without God's perspective. Okay? And I want you to keep getting that. It's soap bubbles. You know, and we had our little soap bubble thing, and I asked Ken to do it again. I don't know how to even turn the thing on. Do we have a clicker? Well. Oh, forget those. Those are, those are fake. <laughs> Wait, doesn't this work? Doesn't this work? Whoa! Uh, not now it doesn't. Oh well, you got the point. You got the point. I got some. Oh, he's got a backup. Soap bubbles, soap bubbles, all is soap bubbles. You know, what, what are we talking about? Well, they're pretty. You know, you can enjoy them. They bring some satisfaction in the sense of just fun and the kids play with it and it's great. And, but it's just, what, very temporal. And anything that you have in this world is going to be like that. And I want you to catch that. Some of them are big. Some of, whatever your things are, some of them are real small and they bring joy but they're all going to be temporal. They're all going to be temporal. And if you can just, and, I, and I'm not doing this just to play around, I want you to get the picture of vanity. It's not bad. It's just that it's temporal. They're there today, gone tomorrow. And if we remember that, then, then we're getting somewhere with that. Now sometimes, because of that, it can be negative. You can feel negative about it, right? I mean, you know, you go back, and, and, and my wife and I have been thinking about it, and, and we say, boy, you know, I remember my 20s and 30s. I don't even know where my 40s went. I don't. I mean, the kids were, you know, and some of them were going to college, and they're like, poof. And, uh, 
It, that could be negative if you look at it like that. But if you say, you know what, I walk with Jesus. He had a purpose, and thank you, Lord, for all the blessings. That's not that negative. See, it's how you look at the soap bubbles, okay? So enjoy life. That's the great thing about Ecclesiastes. He's saying enjoy life, okay? Not, oh, remember, you know, we're going to die someday. Eat, drink, and be merry. He never says for tomorrow we die. Eat, drink, and be merry. Enjoy the moment. Enjoy what you're going to do. That's why I think, you know, I, I really, you know, and, and I'm in a little bit different situation now, but I'll tell you what, when you sit down to the meal to this afternoon, I, I hope when you pray, I hope you pray, first of all, and thank the Lord. But I hope you pray more than just, thank you, Jesus, you know, let's get on with this food. I mean, look at your food and say, man, thank you. Thank you for all the taste, the differences. I mean, you, we should be a grateful, grateful in people, and it should be, it, it, it should be seen even in the meal. I was thinking about the... Um, the uh, Israelites, you know, 40 years, manna and quail. Now again, I can't eat food right now. That actually hit me yesterday. I was like, wow, that'd be pretty depressing after a while. Think about this. No fruit, no different taste, every day the same thing. Manna and quail. Now it sustained them. And it was supposed to be sweet and had protein and everything else. But see, that was a judgment of God. Not only a provision of God, but a judgment. You know, I'd be thankful. You want to complain? I would just give you one food. Two foods. And you're going to have to be satisfied with that. And none of the other variety. So when you sit down at the meal today and you have all these varieties, I hope you're really grateful that you can enjoy every one of them. So that, so the message of the book is enjoy life. It's short. <coughs> Sure, sometimes it feels meaningless, meaninglessness, there's a meaninglessness to it, if you start thinking of it under the sun. And that should bring us right back to God's perspective and say, wait a second here. No, no, it's not vanity like, you know, futility, it's, it's short-lived, that's all. So there's all that. Bottom line, there is no happiness outside of God. There is no, you know, if I could just, you know, go to you that are 20 years old and teenagers and kids and even the older and say, listen, there is no happiness without God. There is no happiness without God. Now, let's go to a, a third main piece here, and that's verse 3. And this is the main question. See, we've looked at, the, we've looked at who the messenger is, what the message is, and now we're going to look at a main question. This main question of verse 3 is what he's trying to answer the rest of the book. Okay. What profit has a man from all his labor? That's the question. What profit is there? In which he toils, now catch this, under the sun. That's very important. Because Solomon is going to be looking at the earth, all the possibilities under the sun. See, he's not bringing God into this at the moment. He's going to, but he's not right now. See, what, what profit is there? What gain is there? Now, the word profit is what's left over after all the expenses are paid. That's profit, right? When you say profit, everything has to be paid. Now, what's left over? And he's going to look at his life and he's saying, okay, a guy's going to work, a woman's going to work, all this work. And What profit is there? By the way, that's where you get midlife crises right there. Right? No. I mean, hey, you're 20s, 30s, you have all these ideas and dreams, 30s, 40s, 50s, and I'm getting older... And my dreams are not being recognized, you know. And now what do I do? Get a new girlfriend and a new red hot Ferrari. No, no, that's why, why they do that though, right? I mean, what profit is there? I mean, I'm just spinning my wheels. I'm just going through the, 
the whole thing over and over and over again. I mean, is it worth it? Am I really accomplishing anything? What, what will I have to show for all my toil? What will I have to show for my life? <clears throat> what mark am I going to leave? What legacy? What, am I going to be remembered? I mean, is this hard work really worth it? Is the extra hours really worth it? Is there a payout? You ever think that way? That's a great question. I mean, that is a great question. So that's the question. See, people labor. And they're laboring for profit. But the question is, is, there, is it worth the effort? Okay? Now again, under the sun. Under the sun, again, is this is what life is like when we view it from purely a human perspective. When we limit our gaze to this solar system without ever lifting our eyes to see the beauty and the glory of God in heaven. That's under the sun. So that's a very, very important piece there. Because if he just left it without under the sun, what profit has a man from all his labor in which he toils? I'd say there's a whole lot of profit because I know that he's, that God, Christ, is going to reward me. That's worth it. But if you put it under the sun, no, nah, that's a good question. And see, that's a great question, for especially if you're younger. Man, if you can get this, it can, it can bring a dynamic into your life that you never had because it's not just about the, the grueling grind of just, you know, just making it and just providing. No, no. How can you live above the sun with God's perspective so that our, we have an eternal view? Well, let's go to verses 4 to 7. I'm going to read them. One generation passes away and another generation comes. See, he's going to give some illustration here out of nature. But the earth, that's the first one, earth abides forever. The sun, that's the second one, also rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it arose. The wind, number three, goes towards the south and turns around to the north. And, and the wind whirls about continually and comes again on its circuit. And number four, all the rivers run into the sea... Yet the sea is not full to the place from which the rivers come. There they return again. Now, some, again, commentators look at this as very negative. And they just basically say, do you see what he's doing here? The earth, the sun, the wind, the rivers, you know, just the treadmill filled with monotony, the utter futility of life. The sun comes up, the sun goes down, the rain comes and it never fills. No, no, no. He's not talking about emptiness of our existence. Because if you read, I would say, seven out of ten commentaries, that's what they're trying to point to. See, Solomon is looking at this and saying the emptiness of our existence. It's just day after day, the monotony of life, and that is what uh, labor, you know, labor and profit is. It's just... No, no, he's really pointing to the constants. There's a consistency See, there's a predictability, there's a stability in the earth, the sun, the wind, and the rivers. There's a reliability factor, right? I mean, you, you went to bed last night fully expecting that the sun was going to be here today, right? I mean, that's a reliability factor. Why? Why? Now, catch this. Because God made the world and it contains the purpose he placed in his creation. Why is the sun so predictable? Because it's governed by God. 
Even here, he's not mentioned God yet, but he's, he's, trying, he's starting to get people to think, wait a second here, there's a constantness, a reliability to, to nature, and yet when it comes to mankind, one generation comes, another generation goes. So let's just break this down. By the way, in your outline, I think I put the progression of life. It really should say, earth continues forever, right? Because that's what he says. Earth continues forever. By the way, is that, is that true? One generation passed away, another generation comes, but the earth... Is, is that true, that the earth is going to abide forever? No. But the world of nature as a man under the sun may think of it that way. And you see a lot of secular people today, you know, we've got to protect the earth. Why? Because it's, it's been around for billions of years and we've got to protect it because it's going to be around here for another, you know, whatever, millions of years or whatever. Well, no, nature remains, but human beings pass away. Now, first of all, you've got to get that context. But again, like you said, the earth is not going to remain forever. Uh, Revelation 21 verse 1 says, there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. Now, let, me, let me just digress for just a moment. We live on a disposable planet, right? Amen? Jesus Christ, the one who's going to destroy the earth is Christ. Not humanity. And God told us in Genesis to, to subdue it. And that was, Adam and Eve were told that before the curse, subdue the earth. And it was also applied to Noah after the flood. See, the idea is this, we are supposed to use the earth in a, as one man said, productive, orderly way. In other words, to yield its riches and its purposes of, of God for mankind. It's good to drill. I'm not trying to get political here. But there's a movement that is absolutely from Satan. It's wicked, the environmental movement. They say in the next few years, if all those things were put into place, between 20 and 50 million people would die. 20 to 50 million. Why? Well, think of it this way. What if national fuel... You got a letter in the mail this next week, and National Fuel said, oh, by the way, you know, we're doing this environmental thing. We're going to start right here in the United States. Oh, and by the way, it's going to apply to you. What do you mean? Well, we're only going to ration to you one-third of the, national, uh, the fuel that we have been giving you. So now you only have one-third to live on. Not, not the whole amount. You're going to have to cut back. Because if it's good for the goose, it's good for the gander. Would that affect you? That'd affect you big time. Well, think about the poor. And they can't get fuel. They can't get the developments that we have. It kills them. See, it doesn't just, it's not just an inconvenience, it actually kills them. Now, why did I go all the way there? Because it was just in my heart to say. Uh, we got to be careful because, you know, you see all these Christians even getting on this movement. We live on a disposable planet. God wants us to use it for mankind, not for, not for uh, getting rich for mankind, for the... For helping mankind. But, but let's get back to the other part. One generation passes away, another generation comes. You know, it's so quick. And, and we look at the, 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 the newest generation like they have all kinds of problems, don't we? And we complain as older people. Like, boy, they just don't seem to have it together. Well, let me give you a guy that lived hundreds and hundreds and thousands of years ago, Socrates. This is what he said of children. The children now love luxury. They have bad manners, contempt for authority. They show disrespect to their elders. <laughs> Nothing changes. <laughs> Peter the Hermit said this, The young people of today think of nothing but themselves. They have no reverence for parents or old age. They're impatient of all restraint. 
They talk as if they alone knew everything. You ever have one of them? One generation comes, one generation goes. Is there any hope? Is there any change? Does anything really happen? It just seems like a seemingly endless procession. There was a time when you thought you were the young, then the middle aged. if you're older, you know. But what is he saying? But the earth is stable, at least for the moment. Now again, there comes a day when a new heaven and a new earth. How about this? Number five, uh, verse five. The path of the sun. The sun also rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it arose. See, it's not this slow weariness. Again, commentators try to say, you know, the sun and just keep. No, he's talking about consistency, reliability, predictability. It revolves. Well, it doesn't revolve around the earth. Earth revolves around the sun. But, but east to west. I looked up on the internet. When would the sun rise if the Lord doesn't return? On January 21st, 2030. 14 years from right now. I was just curious. When would the, and it's going to rise in New York on 7.15 in the a.m. and set 5 o'clock p.m. That's how consistent it is. You can get on there and you can find out, well, and when was the, you know, if the Lord doesn't come back, in 2065, it can tell you. That's how consistent the sun is. And that's all Solomon is saying. See, nature is consistent. Why? Because God is all-powerful and he is an orderly God. By the way, aren't you glad we have an orderly God? Okay. How about number three? The course of the world. The wind goes towards the south, turns around to the north. By the way, in ours, it goes west-east, right? But actually, in Israel, the way it actually goes that direction, north-south. So he's just looking, and there's a circuit, and comes again on its circuit. Again, not aimless, monotonous, but it has its own fixed route. And then the cycle of the water. All the rivers run into the sea, and yet the sea is not full. Isn't that amazing? He's, he's describing the hydrological cycle. You learned that back probably in uh, what, seventh grade or whatever. You got the ocean, the sun. Now, by the way, these elements, the sun and the wind, and then you have evaporation, and then it's carried, and then there's condensation because of the coolness, and then it goes over, and what happens? From evaporation to condensation to what? Precipitation. And it's this wonderful, you know, it's, it's, isn't it wonderful how evolution gave us that? No, it's God. <laughs> experts tell us that any, this is from Dr. David Jeremiah, uh, experts tell us that at any given time, 97% of all the water on the earth is in the oceans. Only point zero 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 one percent and I don't even know what, Help me out. What is that? Is it zero, 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 three, four. Yeah, one ten thousandths percent is in the atmosphere available for rain. Most of it's in the ocean. Okay. The cooperation of the sun and the wind makes possible the evaporation and movement of moisture, and this keeps the water circulating. But the sea never changes. The rivers and waters pour into the seas, but the seas remain the same. Now he asks the question, or he makes a statement, excuse me. But is life this way? By the way, I, I put an exclamation point there. It, this is how I revised it. Is life this same way? Is our life this way? Because look at what he says in verse 8. All things are full of labor. Now again, he used that word labor. Man cannot express it. The eye is not satisfied. What do you mean not satisfied? It's always looking for more. 
Right? Always looking for more. Not just satisfaction, but more security, uh, more contentment. Okay? Is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. That which has been is what will be. That which is done is what will be done. And there is nothing new. Now catch this. Under the sun. Now, so he's connecting verse 3 with verse 8. Under the sun. That's important. And as it comes to just earth beings. Without God. Without salvation. Without his perspective. It's just we want more and more. Never satisfied. Never enough. Isn't that what life really is all about? I mean, for the person without Christ, isn't that what he's doing? Just more. I mean, this is so... Talk about reality. But do Christians fall into that sometimes? More and more thinking there's going to be satisfaction. If I just buy this next thing, just this next event in my life, this next whatever. But it's under the sun. But what profit is there? See, what do you have to show for all this? And I think he's looking at verse 8, going back to verse 3, and he's saying, but yeah, but you're never satisfied. You're always looking for more. Sure, you might have a retirement party and a gold watch. I don't know, do they give those away? But, you know, think about labor. You know, I was thinking about how much all the work we do around the house. You know, there's always more meals to prepare, more dirty dishes to clean, more floors to scrub, more garbage to take out, more clothes to wash. You know, the kids always need to be cleaned, at least sometimes. You know, and all this stuff, and it's just labor, labor, labor. I mean, under the sun, it can get very, very uh, meaningless. But you put an above-the-sun perspective on it, and now you're serving Christ. And Remember, when you serve Christ, there is no secular in serving Christ. Everything is spiritual. Everything is an act of worship. Everything is, Lord, I want to glorify you. Now you have perspective. Do you get the point? See, now you go to work with, 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 um, with intensity. Lord, I want to, I, I, I want to serve you at work. I want, I want to be a testimony for you at work. And Lord, I know you're going to send some very irritating people to me at work. They're going to irritate me. And I could blow, and ten years ago I might have, but I'm not. I'm going to handle them with grace and mercy and gentleness and humility. And I'm going to show the love of Christ to the other workers and that one that's irritating me. Because you've sent that irritant in my life. Do you see what I'm saying? And now it's a whole different perspective. Because you're above the sun, not under the sun. you got God's perspective. Well, let's, let's finish this up. Oh, I'm running out of time here. Um, now he asks some questions. Is there really anything new? Look at verse 10. Is there really anything new? Uh, is there anything of which it may be said, see, this is new. It has already been in ancient times before us. Now, when, when you come to this, don't think of inventions when he says new. He's, he's talking new in the sense of how humanity deals with life. Okay, He's not talking about, yeah, sure, we have a new iPhone. What is it, the newest one, the 7? iPhone 7, is that correct? See, don't think of it that way. Nope, nope, no. Nope. We're not talking inventions here. He's saying, is there really new anything new in the earth? As far as how we look at perspective, how people do get satisfied. Does human nature ever change from selfish to self, self-centered to sinful to something else? I mean, that's what he's getting at here. Is anything really new? I mean, does humanity ever have a different nature? Or... Is there anything new to really find lasting meaning and satisfaction in life under the sun? Is there really 
something out there new that I can discover where I can find true meaning and satisfaction. You know, to find hope and true peace and joy and contentment. Is there anything new out there where I can find and investigate, Solomon says, where that's going to open up to me where I can find true joy, peace, you know, to be, to be loved and to love? I mean, is there, is there anything out there that I'm going to be able to investigate to find true security and a permanent relationship to the one true and living God? That's how he means new. He doesn't mean it like a new, like a, like a new invention. And again, we know as Christians, yes, right? Absolutely. I mean, 1 Timothy 2, For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. See, yes, under the earth or under the sun, no, there's nothing going to be new. Nature's the same. Sinfulness is the same. You can't find peace. You can't find joy. You can't find satisfaction. You cannot find a relationship with God outside of Him invading your life and revealing to you Christ. But everything that he's, he's looking for is what? Found in our relationship with Jesus Christ. That's what he's going to, we're going to draw to that in a, little, in a few lessons. Again, go back to Colossians 3. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above. Christ is the key. He is the answer. He is how we don't live under the sun. By the way, we don't also live over the sun. Over the sun means that we are just... Um, Optimistic, or let me say, I, I wrote baseless optimism. No, we don't, we don't want to live under the sun. We don't want to live over the sun. We want to live above it. Okay? So Christ is the answer. Is there anything new? No, not under the sun. But again, when, we've, when we receive Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, He saves us not only from our sins, but he also brings us into his family. And then we have a, I mean, think about all the new we have. We have a new name, a new family, a new father, new brothers and sisters, a new hope, a new peace, a new joy. All that's new, everything is new. It's all in Christ. And, and when it comes to Christ, then he makes all things new. Remember, we are a new creation. Remember I gave that illustration, the price tags change. And now all of a sudden we find satisfaction, not in this world, but in Christ. And whatever he gives us in this world, we're okay with. It's a whole different perspective. So that's the first question he's going to answer. I mean, is there really anything new? The answer is no, until you find Christ. And I'm going to say that, no, you cannot find peace and hope and joy. We can't find forgiveness. You can't find any of those things that the human heart is looking for outside of Christ. So if you've never come to Christ... You need to, you need to consider, do I need, what did Christ do for you? He came and died. He died the penalty that you should pay, and that is the penalty for your sin. He, he died on the cross. He paid the penalty for your sin on the cross. You can be forgiven, brought into God's family, find true satisfaction in Him. But then the second question, does anyone really remember? Uh, there's no remembrance, verse 11, of former things. In other words, we forget. Nor will there be any remembrance of things that are to come by those who will come after us. In other words, we forget, and then you're going to have another generation, and after a few generations, they forget. We all seem to forget. We're all going to forget. Now, that's kind of depressing. You're going to be forgotten. That's what he's saying. You're going to be forgotten. You're going to forget, and you're going to be forgotten. Isn't that depressing? 
You know, I want to leave a legacy to my children and grandchildren, and, and the farthest I might be able to leave it is just a couple, three generations, right? After that, I think of my great-great-grandmother, St. George. Uh, great-grandma St. George, I don't think, ever learned any English. I remember going to her house in the 60s or 70s, 60s and 70s, and Grace took care of her. She was an Italian lady that I think came directly from Sicily in 1904, 5, 6, whatever. My mom's here. She could tell me for sure. But the point is this. I can tell you very little about great-grandma St. George. I just remember her little face. And, her, and manja, manja. You know, she'd like push the food, third, you know, third trip around. Like you had to be stuffed when you left her house. Beyond that, and you will be forgotten. But God doesn't forget. Under the sun, you're forgotten. Under the sun, you forget. But God remembers that's the whole great thing about the judgment seat of Christ. He remembers. What you do on this earth will be remembered. 1 Corinthians 15 says this, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the labor of the Lord, the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor, what? Is not in vain in the Lord. Why? Because he remembers. He remembers. We forget. He remembers. You see how the difference between under the sun and above? So, does anyone really remember? No. You're going to be forgotten. One day, we too will be forgotten. Centuries from now, the common experiences of our own time will be among the former things, like he says. What we have accumulated will be lost. What we have accomplished will be forgotten. Our descendants will not remember us any better than we remember our ancestors. Eventually, when things that have yet to happen are forgotten, those people will no longer be remembered either. Oh, Boy, for under the sun type person, that is a totally depressing thought. But a person that's a Christian walking with Jesus, having an eternal perspective, that that doesn't matter a bit. Why? Because Christ remembers. Amen? See, you've got to live that way. Otherwise, you know, it's just like some of these stars. They always are trying to get their name somewhere. Why? Because they want to be remembered. But all things are new. All things are new in God. And as one man said, the function of Ecclesiastes is to bring us to the point where we begin to fear that such a comment as all is vanity is the only honest one. That's a fearful thing. So it is. If everything is dying, I mean, we face the appalling inference that nothing has meaning, nothing matters under the sun. But what is the preacher doing? He's driving us to God. He's not even mentioning God yet. He just mentioned nature. He said, listen, there's a constant. Why? Because God is behind it. God is controlling it. So what is, with the preacher, he's bringing out a reality and even a despair. Because with the despair, yeah, I'm going to be forgotten. No, but not in Christ. See, he drives us to God. Why? Or say it this way, history has a goal. Everything that's happening has a goal. It's all, and God is, is accomplishing his purpose He's here, he's going to reward his faithful and judge the wicked. History has a goal. And as long as I know that, I'm part of history. I'm part of that process. And I'm above, and therefore I have his perspective and all this stuff. Hey, what is the reality? If the doctors are right, I won't be here next year. That's the reality. I won't be here next year. And give it 10 years, and Donna will have forgotten me. No, you won't. I wanted to see her face. Um, 
But you know what? I am absolutely confident God's not going to forget. And I'm standing before Christ, and I, the best is yet to come, and heaven is a promotion. I don't want, I want to stick around. I like to see my kids, grandkids. I can't wait to get another hug. They always hug me when they come in and when they hug. Not my, not Pat, I'm talking about my grandkids. But you get the you get the perspective. Do you see what he's doing? Because see, he, he's going to get real positive here in a little bit. But see, he had to lay down a negative. He had to make you despair, right? Make sure that you're really living with the right perspective. So let me just give you three final and an illustration. We're done. First of all, believers often forget to remember God. Sometimes we get into the under the sun mentality. You know, we get depressed. Our perspective goes off. We got to get above the sun perspective. Because that's where meaning and purpose is. Because meaning and purpose is found in a relationship and a walk with Jesus Christ. And you can't replace it. And you can't say this. Well, I have a relationship with Christ. I'm saved. But now I'm going to have an under-the-sun perspective. No, you get depressed. You will get depressed. You'll get frustrated, irritated, angered. Things are happening. Oh, oh, maybe the fact that Trump, you know, and everything. Oh, you get a a moment of happiness out of that. But it's not going to satisfy and some of you are downright angry about that. But the point is, is this. Walk with Christ. That's the first one. Don't forget God. Number two, we must look above the sun. The heavenly realm. The, the glory of the Lord that's even found in creation. Psalms 19. Okay, we got to get, you know, and, 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 and that comes through discipline. And then finally, God who rules the sun is always doing something new. He's the new. See, they ask, is there anything new? No, not one under the sun. But when it comes to above the sun, oh, all kinds of new. We participate as Christians in a new covenant. We have a new heart. We have a new self, a new creation, a new family, a new name, a new father. And someday there'll be a new heaven and earth. There's not despair. There was a guy that was talking to a, I think he was a pastor, and he made this one comment. The guy was a... a, uh, you know, didn't believe in God like an atheist. And he said this, I am searching for something that the world is not giving me. At least he came to the right conclusion. Let me end with this final illustration. Blaise Pascal. Blaise Pascal, he lived back in the 1600s. Was without equal, a brilliant French thinker, scientist, mathematician, and inventor. As a boy in Paris, his remarkable grasp of mathematics led to his involvement with the Academy of Science where he mingled with the greatest intellectuals of his day. At 15, he was writing books and developing theorems that left his professors shaking their heads. As a teenager, he invented history's first digital calculating machine. Other discoveries led to the invention of a barometer, a vacuum pump, the air compressor, the syringe, and a hydraulic press. A phenomenal man, right? But as a young man, Pascal had trouble with spiritual equations of life, and he soon became very disillusioned with the pleasures of his fashionable society. They weren't satisfying. They weren't fulfilling. One night, Pascal picked up a Bible and turned to John 17. As he began reading verse 3, it just blazed out like a spark and seemed to set the room on fire. And this is what verse 3 says. 
And this is eternal life. Now think of eternal life. He's looking for something. This is eternal life. That they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. His soul instantly took wing. And he was in the permanent embrace of Jesus Christ. Taking pen and parchment, he began quickly writing snatches of his thoughts. This is what he wrote. In the year of grace, 1654, on Monday, 23rd November, and then he just wrote words, fire, God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not of the philosophers and scholars, certitude, certitude, feeling, joy, peace, joy, 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 Tears of joy. Then he wrote the verse, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Jesus Christ, let me never be separated from him. Pascal spent the rest of his life proclaiming the greatness of God. That scrap of parchment was found after his death, sewed into the lining of his coat, that it might ever be close to his heart. It was this same Pascal who echoed the words of Ecclesiastes. There is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every man that cannot be filled by any created thing, but by God alone made known through Christ Jesus. Anything else would be the equivalent of forcing a square peg into a round hole. None but Christ can fill that hole, though men spend their lives trying every other possibility in vain. Have you tried that? But the moment the rightful Lord of your soul fills its vacuum, there will be a fullness such as you have never knew could be possible under the sun. It's only Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's stand as we worship him.